way through this uh, gospel narrative and learning about the person of Jesus, his work. Uh, we've been seeing that Jesus is being presented as a servant in this book. And this morning, we're going to look at Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 52. And in this, this is the, the last segment of something that's gone back for a couple chapters. And so at the end of our passage this morning, there's a guy named Bartimaeus who's blind that Jesus heals. Now, this is part of a larger literary unit in the middle of the book of Mark that begins back in chapter 8. So if you look back in chapter 8, verse 22, chapter 8, verse 22, it says that they came to Bethsaida, that's Jesus and his disciples, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So back here in chapter 8, we begin with this blind person that Jesus gives sight to. Today, we're going to end with a passage as a blind man that Jesus gives sight to. And what we see in the bigger context of what's going on in Mark is Mark is wanting to open our spiritual eyes and helping us to see that there is a physical blindness, and when we are physically blind, we're limited, and that when we're spiritually blind, we're also limited. And the God who's able to open physical, physically blind eyes is able to open spiritually blind eyes. So that is where we are in this context. And so let's begin in chapter 10, back to chapter 10, verse 32. So it says, begins by saying, And they, this is Jesus and his disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. Okay, we pause here. Now, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's heading to Jerusalem for the Passover meal. Um, it's a time whenever all the Jews uh, would gather at Jerusalem. They would sacrifice their lambs, this Passover that pointed them back to their slavery in Egypt and God bringing them out of slavery with the blood on doorposts of a lamb and then bringing them through the Red Sea. That, that, that it was, it's a reminder of that. And so all these people are journeying to Jerusalem and it says that they're going up to Jerusalem. And as we've talked before, anytime we read in the Bible when people are going to Jerusalem, they're always going up to Jerusalem. Okay? Whether they're coming from the north, south, east, west, it's always up. When we talk about that, we say, I'm going to go up to Lafayette, right? Because it's which direction? North. Okay? That's how our minds work. When they say they're going up to Jerusalem because it's, it's elevated, its geographical elevation is up. So whichever direction you went, you were going up to Jerusalem. So the people are traveling up to Jerusalem. Jesus is walking ahead of them. He is setting the pace. He's leading the way. It says, and they, these people who are with them, are amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he, be he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Verse 33, it says, he said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. The text continues in saying, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one on your left, in glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, 
or to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or to my left is not mine to grant, but for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over the great ones and exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And there was leaving Jericho with his disciples, there was a great crowd. And Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and he said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Well, as we see this passage that Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem, we see him courageously journeying to Jerusalem, that he is making his way up to the city where he knows what's going to happen to him. He knows that his life is, is, is the lifespan is short. That he knows why he's going there. He knows what's going to happen to him. But he courageously journeys to Jerusalem anyway. And as he heads up that, there, the followers of Jesus are amazed. They're both amazed and afraid. Certainly amazed because they're learning about who Jesus is. They're, they're hearing of his authoritative teaching, that he is declaring that he is the Son of God, that he has come to set people free from their sins, he's come to rescue them. And, and as he's hearing that, and then seeing the miracles and blind eyes being opened, deaf people hearing, lame people walking, as he's seeing all of these incredible miracles take place, the people are amazed. And, which, by the way, that ought to be our response to Jesus as well. I mean, to be amazed at Him. To be amazed as we read about Him historically, but then be amazed at what we see Him do even in our own midst. That we would be amazed. But the people aren't simply amazed, they're also afraid. And it's likely they're afraid because they know of the growing hostility between Jesus and the religious leaders. The religious leaders have become hostile to Jesus. He has been teaching at things that they were contrary to what they taught. Jesus was saying things like, you have heard it said that you shall not murder. And all the Pharisees were like, that's what we teach. That's what the Old Testament teaches. And Jesus says, but I say to you that you shall not be angry with your brother. For when you're angry with your brother, you've already committed murder. Jesus is teaching, I say to you, you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus says, but I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart already. 
And Jesus is raising the bar. And, and a couple of weeks ago, we looked at a passage, and Jesus is taught, looking at the Pharisees and the rich people, and he's saying it is harder for a rich man to get through to heaven it is, than it is to get a camel through an eye of a needle. And so the hostility is ramping up. And as the hostility ramps up, the people are heading to Jerusalem, and they're thinking, I don't know what's going to happen here. I mean, what are the religious leaders going to do to Jesus? And what are the Romans going to do if Jesus is this Messiah figure who's going to set us free from the Romans? What's going to happen in Jerusalem? And so as we read this narrative, we see the tension begin to build. And so Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. He's out front. He's committed, courageously heading that way. People are amazed. They're afraid. And then he says in verse 33... He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Jesus is talking about what's coming next. And then he says, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Lots of detail here. Lots of detail, but this isn't the first time Jesus has told his disciples this. Turn back to chapter 8, verse 31. And again, this is in the midst of this context of the two bookends of the blind men being healed. And inside of this block, we see in chapter 8, verse 31, after Jesus has been confessed to be the Messiah by Peter, Peter says, you are the Messiah. Jesus then, right after that, in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise. So he told them this first time, I'm going to be delivered over to the religious authorities in Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered over to them. I'm going to be killed, and I will rise. And that they didn't get it. I mean, in fact, Peter, in this, Um, In verse 32, it says, And he said plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And Peter's like, wait, this can't happen. You you can't die, right? And that's where we heard the passage. Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. He was, I'm not going to let this be a temptation from keeping my eyes on the cross. So he told him here in chapter 8, verse 31. We also see it in chapter 9, verse 30. Look what it says here. Again, Jesus knows what's happening in Jerusalem. He knows where he's going. He's wanting his disciples to understand this. And in chapter 9, verse 30, it says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. So he says it in chapter 8, he says it in chapter 9, he says it in chapter 10. And by saying it three times, would we expect the disciples to begin to get it? Well, we know the story, we know they don't. But we would hope that they would, right? But it's just not fitting in to their understanding. They just don't get it. And so in this third account, in chapter 10, Jesus adds additional details. He doesn't just say, I'm going to be handed over to the religious officials. It says in verse Uh, It says to us in verse 33 that they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. Those are the Roman authorities. He's going to be handed over to the Roman authorities. And what are they going to do? They're going to mock mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. We fast forward a few chapters in Mark. What happens to Jesus? 
He is delivered over by Judas to the high priests. They do a mock trial. They condemn him to death. They take him to Pilate and say, this man deserves to die. And what do they do? They mock him. They spit on him. They flog him. They nail him to a cross. They kill him. And what happens three days later? He rises. So I'm emphasizing that because to see Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen. And he's sharing this so that after he dies and when he rises from the dead, they're going to be able to point back and think, man, this happened exactly like he said it would. And why can Jesus say this exactly like it's going to happen and be confident that it's going to? Because he's who? He is God. He is the eternal Son of God. And He knows He's come for this very purpose. And so we see the followers being amazed and afraid, but we see Jesus in the midst of this. He is clear and confident. He is clear about what's going to happen and He is confident about why this is going to, why this is going to unfold. He recognizes this is not the culmination of just some world events happening, but this is the orchestration of a sovereign God who's moved all of history to this moment. All of the Old Testament has been pointing here, all the way from Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. We could look at Noah's Ark and this flood coming and destroy, bringing destruction, but salvation to those who enter into the ark. It's a picture of Jesus. And we see the, the promise that God made to Abraham, that God's going to make him a great nation, that all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through him. How's that going to happen? It's ultimately through Jesus. We see the promise of David, the king, who's going to sit on a throne forever, being this person, Jesus. All of the Old Testament has been pointing to this. And what we see in Jesus making this declaration as Jesus has come for such a time as this. All of world history culminating right here, and he knows it. And so Jesus comes confidently, and he heads to Jerusalem. And yet as he teaches this, in verse 35, it's clear the disciples, again, don't seem to get it. Because in verse 35, they come up to Jesus. And think, imagine this. Jesus has just said, I'm going to die, and all this stuff's going to happen. And they're thinking, okay, you done yet, Jesus? Because I had a question for you. Because right? the question I have for you is not, why is this all going to happen? How is this going to happen? Help explain this. What's their question? They come to him in verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who earlier in the book, they're called the sons of thunder. Right? These guys have big personalities. And they came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's clear by the question. They, just don't, they kind of missed all that he just taught. But they're saying we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, how do you hear that question? I mean, parents, your kid comes to you and says, Dad, I want you to do whatever I ask. What's going to be your response? My response is, let me ask you some questions. <laughs> right? Because where do you see that going? Give me anything that I ask for. You're like, I'm not sure where this is going. But before we get too critical of disciples, one of the things I want to point out is I'm amazed at the comfort that they had with Jesus. The familiarity, the warmth that they had, the, the, the closeness. To be able to come to Jesus and to be able to ask this bold, bold statement to say, give us whatever, we want you to give us whatever we ask. I think that helps us to understand some of the, the, the relationship that Jesus had with these disciples. 
Uh, James and John would have been two of Jesus' three inner circle. The other one would be Peter. Peter, James, and John were often uniquely uh, set apart for Jesus when they got to witness some ministries. And so these guys had some significant role among the disciples, and yet there's a warmth that they feel confident in asking this question. And yet Jesus, we see in verse 36, he does something very wise. He asks them a question. Okay, it's like, Dad, give me anything. I, Dad, we, I want you to do whatever I ask. Right? That he, Jesus asks a question, what do you want me to do for you? What is it you want? And in verse 37, they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. That's a small request, right? Listen, what we want is, we know you're the greatest. I mean, you are, I mean you're, you're the Messiah. We get this. We understand who you are. And we know that in your kingdom there's going to be a throne and somebody's going to sit at your right and your left and those are going to be the people that are a significant influence, authority, power. Can we have those? Great, give those to us. Which again is a pretty bold request, but they're asking to have this positions of power and authority. They want to be great in the kingdom of God. And Jesus, we want to be great in the kingdom of God. Let me sit at your right and let me sit at your left. And Jesus says to them in verse 36, you do not know what you are asking. And then he goes on and he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I will be baptized? And when Jesus is talking about his cup and his baptism, he's talking about suffering and death. Are you able to suffer endure the suffering that I'm going to endure? Are you going to be able to die as a result of all of this? Are you willing to do that? And now, in verse 39, they make another bold statement. They say, we are. We can do that. Now, if, I'm, if we kind of slow down, what's our expected response of Jesus? I think, guys, go back to the back of the line. You don't get it yet. But Jesus says to them something astounding. He says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. You guys are right. You will suffer and you will die for me. We would read this in church history that, well, not even church history, in the book of Acts, we see James, this early leader in the church, that he is proclaiming the gospel and he gets killed with a sword. So he does drink of the cup and baptized with the suffering and death. John, where church history would tell us, John suffered greatly at the hands of the Romans and eventually was exiled to an island of Patmos where he died. And so these individuals, they're saying, we will give our lives to you and whatever comes, we will take it. And Jesus says, you're right, you will. But then Jesus says, he goes on in verse 40, he says, but to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. So Jesus basically says, guys, great request. That's not how it's going to happen. I mean, it's not, I don't grant those positions, and frankly, the fact that you're asking is a little bit of a problem, but you are going to do some good things for me. There is a level of significance you will have. Well, what happens is word kind of trickles through the crowd, verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. So why would the other ten disciples be a little upset with James and John? 
Is it because I'm thinking they're like, oh, how could you guys be so proud and arrogant? Who do you guys think you are after all? You think you're better than us and all that? And, but inside of them, what are they probably thinking? Yeah, why didn't I think of that? I want to be in that position. I'd be in that position. I deserve that. Because, now, why is it that they might likely, selfishly be indignant towards James and John? I think it's because they're just a lot like us. Right? Because what do we want? Greatness. We, we just want to be great. Now, we may not want to be like king of the world or president of the United States, but we certainly want other people to think we're great. We want other people to think a lot of us and nod their heads and approval and all of that. And so the disciples are recognizing this and they're indignant. And then Jesus likely kind of hears the stir going on. And so you can kind of imagine kind of grumbling and they're making fun of James and John and giving them a hard time. And there's this argument, which they'd argued before, just a chapter earlier about who's going to be the greatest. So this isn't the first time this has come up, right? They're arguing again about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus pulls them aside in verse 42. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And he's saying, now, listen, you guys know how it works in the world. The people who are great... I mean, they're, they, they, they're great and they, uh, they lord it over the others. Like, hey, bow down to me when I walk by. Pay taxes to me. I'm great. You need to show me honor. Okay, that's how it works in the world. And he says, that's not how it works in my kingdom. Verse 43, it says, it shall not be so among you. And there's an astounding statement. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. You see, the disciples are all trying to run to the front of the line. I want to get to the front of the line because I'm at the front of the line. That's greatness. Front of the line, that's privilege. Front of the line, that's where it's at. And what's Jesus saying? It's not the front of the line where greatness is found. Greatness is found at the end of the line and those who are serving back there. And he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. It means not only that you're serving others, but you are indebted to them. You're a servant. And he says in verse 45, For even the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, even the Son of Man, the one who is infinite, eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, creator of the universe, who has clothed himself with flesh, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, which if there's anyone who came to be served, he would be the one. Right? Who should we serve? This king who has stepped out of heaven, clothed himself with, with, clothed himself with flesh, he's the one that should be worshipped. He's the one that should be given all honor. And that's, but that's not why he came. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. That in this, we see Jesus being an example for us. What does service look like? As great as we think we are, we're never above the position of servant. And he's saying in the kingdom of God, those who are great are those who serve. And we recognize that. I, I, I am so thankful for so many people in this church that faithfully serve the Lord as humble servants. I think about the people behind the scenes who clean toilets 
you know, people who are sit in meetings and, and, and meetings and have to wrestle through decisions about what we're going to do and how much we're going to spend money on that and, and how are we going to keep the lights on and who pays what bills, the people behind the scenes there, the people who write the checks that pay our bills, the people who count our money, the people who mow, the, mow, our, mow our property and pick up sticks, the people who paint in, the, in our hallways and paint here to take care of things, the people who call the people when the furnace breaks down, the people who plow the snow, the people who take care of our landscape, the people who sweep and pick up our trash, and all of those things. I mean, there's so many people that faithfully serve and so grateful for that. And, 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 and almost all of them would say, we don't do it because we want any attention. And the reason for that is because you have servants' hearts. And I commend you for that. That is what greatness in the kingdom of God is about. And He calls us to that to reflect Jesus in our hearts for service. And Jesus then says, so He's an example for us of service, but He's more than an example because it says, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. That Jesus came to pay a price to pay a price that we are apart from Him, we are enslaved to our sin, we are bound, we cannot break free. And what did Jesus come? He came to save us. He clothed Himself with flesh to die on the cross and raise from the dead. His blood was the currency that paid a ransom. The debt that we owed, He paid with His blood. And He paid that ransom to the Father, the One with whom that debt is due. And Jesus has done this so that we could be free and so that we could serve. Which is a pretty amazing picture because we think, what did Jesus do? Because we sometimes think, if I'm enslaved, well, I am. If I'm enslaved to my sin, I serve my sin. We think, if Jesus sets me free, I'm no longer a servant. I can be a king or whatever. But Jesus frees us to become what? Servants. Or here's another way of saying it. Jesus frees us to become great. Because who are we living for apart from His work in us? Me. I'm not serving anybody. I mean, I may serve it, but even if I do serve, I'm serving so people pat me on the back. But when Jesus frees us, He frees us to become servants, frees us to be people who are great. And Jesus, in this beautiful teaching, is redefining greatness for us. He's redefining and turning upside down what greatness is all about. Because greatness, listen, greatness is, all, is not a position that is granted by an authority. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not something that's simply granted to somebody because of their position. And, I mean, in our world, nobody likes that today either. If somebody's given a position of greatness just because they're the son of somebody or they know the boss... That didn't go well. But greatness is not a position that is granted by authority. Instead, greatness is a status that is earned by a servant. Greatness is a status that is earned by a servant. And as we recognize that Jesus is this servant, and the greatest servant, then He is the greatest of all. And we see Him declaring that. I challenge us to consider our own expression of this, to realize how am I seeing greatness? How are you seeing greatness? How willing are you to serve others? 
How willing are you to give of yourselves when, when nobody else is watching, when there needs to be met, that you'd take initiative to say, I'll take care of that. That's what a servant does. A servant takes initiative, meets needs. That's what Jesus did, took initiative to meet our need, dying on the cross and raising from the dead. Well, our text continues in verse 46, and look here with me. And it says, And they came to Jericho. As they're leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great cloud, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was standing by the roadside. Now, as we think about why is it that Mark puts this stuff together this way? Why, after talking about greatness, is he talking about a blind guy? Okay, well, think about it. Who's blind in the previous passage? Right? James and John are blind. They're blind to the real reality of greatness. What is Jesus doing? He's opening their eyes. Okay? And so, then this blindness. And so this blind man cries out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And as he cries out, the people are seeing I mean, this blind beggar. And it says to us in verse 48, And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. So we hear Bartimaeus saying, saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And what are his... Everybody says, shh, shh. Don't bother Jesus. You know, he's got things to do. He's heading to Jerusalem. He's going there. Who do you think you are to be bothering Jesus? He's got more important things to do than deal with blind beggars. I mean, he just told us he's going to die and he's going to raise from the dead and all this. So we're heading to Jerusalem and they're rebuking him. But, verse 48, their rebuke did not discourage Bartimaeus. Because it said, he cried out all the more. Which is interesting because I think Bartimaeus, why does he cry out more? Because he, I think he knows if Jesus hears me, he'll care. You guys may be rebuking me. You don't like me, but I think Jesus will hear me. So he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said to him, said to them, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And I love verse 50. And throwing off his coat, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Right? I mean, it's like he's got this coat on, sitting by the thing. And they said, call. And he's like, I'm up. And he's there. He is, I'm there with Jesus. He says, come to me. I am coming to him. And Jesus, in verse 51, says to him, what do you want me to do for you? Have we heard that question before today? Yeah. Okay. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, light should be going on. Hey, somebody else asked that question. Who asked that question? Oh, yeah, James and John. What did they want? They wanted to be great. Give us something. We, what do you, and we want to be great. What does Bartimaeus say? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. What does Bartimaeus want? Bartimaeus, listen, Bartimaeus knows his need. He is a blind man, but he sees. What does he see? He sees that Jesus can heal him. He has faith. He calls to Jesus. And so being blind, he can see. James and John, being seeing, they're blind. And Jesus is helping us to see this. What do you want me to do? And he knows his need and he says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And he says to them, you, believe, you have believed that I could do this. You've come to me in faith. I'm going to give you sight. And he comes to him, and he comes to Jesus, and Jesus gives him sight. And it says in verse, it says at the end of the verse, and immediately he recovered his sight, and he followed him on the way. 
It's a beautiful picture. He, he, he believes, he sees, and he follows. And that's the pattern of belief that God calls us to. That what does God call us to? To, to believe. Because what does believing doing? It allows us to see. Seeing things we never saw before. Understanding the Word of God in ways we never saw before. Seeing ourselves as way more sinful than we ever imagined. We believe and we see Jesus as far more gracious than we could have ever dreamed. And where our eyes are opened when we believe. So we believe, we see, and then what did Bartimaeus do? He followed. And that is this pattern that we've seen from middle of chapter 8 through here, is that blindness, Jesus removes blindness to those who will believe. Believe, blindness removed, follow Him. That's God's call for us. And so we recognize Jesus is merciful. He mercifully opens blind eyes. He calls us. He calls us that we need to call to Him in our desperate need and realizing, Lord, I'm dead in my sin. Lord, I'm blind. I don't see You. I don't understand this truth. I come to You in faith and I come with an undistracted faith. I don't care what others are going to say. I don't care if people are going to rebuke me. I don't care if they're going to mock me. I don't care if they're going to think that I'm a Jesus freak or something. I'm following Jesus with an undistracted faith. And so we call to Him with that. And He gives us this sight. And He gives us sight and we follow Him. And so God calls us then also to follow Him. To follow Him with open eyes. I see Him for who He is. I understand His truth. And I'm going to follow Him. Earlier in this passage or in the segment of Scripture, we're called to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Him. Why will I do that? Because I see I see my real need. I see Him for who He is. I'm going to follow Him as a servant. I'm not going to seek greatness and be at the front of the line, but I'm willing to go to the back of the line and serve. Why? Because I love Jesus for what He has done for me. He was a servant. I want to be a servant. He has freed me from slavery to myself to free me to serve Him. And I want to do that well. And so this morning, as we recognize this idea that believing is seeing, that when our eyes are closed, the Scripture tells us that what generates faith is hearing. And this morning we talked about with your eyes closed, there were truths that you were believing because you heard. You heard that I was on the right side of the, pla- of the auditorium. You heard that I was on the left side. And you believed it, not because you saw, but because you heard. And the Scripture says, faith comes by hearing. And I would ask you this morning, what have you heard this morning that you can say, I need to take these truths and apply them to my lives in fresh ways so that I can see more clearly and I can serve more humbly? Let us pray. Father, we thank You that You open blind eyes. Lord, those, and when we are lost in our sin, in our rebellion, and we're far from You, You call to us through the Word of God and through the teaching of others. You call us to repent and believe. And Lord, when we believe, then we see. God, I pray that You would help us to be a believing and seeing people. And Lord, the fruit of our believing and seeing would be service. That we would see people who are faithful to You. Who are faithful, humbly seeking Your well done as we live for You with our eyes open and our hearts in tune with You.
So God, stir our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.